This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. Well, yesterday we got some clarity on the big question on everyone's mind. When will I get my shot? The Premier keeps insisting that Ontario is leading the country, if not the world, but the numbers show something very different. In terms of the rollout, we are seventh out of 10 provinces in the country. And if you compare us to the rest of the world, ouch, we are 45th behind many countries not as wealthy or well-educated. The people most likely to die of COVID, older people still have to wait weeks behind others who are ahead of them in line, and they can't even make an advance booking because the portal and the call center won't be up until March 15th. Uh, Here's what Doug Ford said when he was asked why those things are up and running in other provinces. Let's look at Alberta. Let's take Alberta, then I'll move over to Quebec. And they're both great uh, provinces, both great, great premiers there. They put up their website, bang, it's crashed. We want to make sure we nail this. We have it down pat. Well, Premier Ford, I would like to make a bet with you with the loser donating to the winner's favorite charity. Let's say 180 bucks, but, you know, I'm willing to wager more. If you think that Ontario's portal will not crash when it is finally up and everyone goes on at once, make that bet with me, okay? Because I think it probably will, and that will not be our worst problem. The bottom line, though, for the whole rollout is that it's up to the province's 34 public health units to come up with a local plan, which also means very different kinds of access in different parts of the province. Let me give out the numbers if you have questions. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Now I am joined by Dr. Paul Ramiliotis, who is the Medical Officer of Health for the Eastern Ontario Health Unit and Chair of the Council of Medical Officers of Health, as well as David Kravitz. Chief Marketing Officer of CARP and Vice President of Zoomer Media. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Libby. Hi, Doctor. Hi, no problem. Uh, Pleasure to be here. Okay, well, Doctor, um, the first thing I'm seeing, I understand uh, the rationale that the situation is different in each of the uh, 34 health units, but some of them are moving ahead, are moving faster than the province. So, for instance, I am reading that Ottawa would start vaccinating those uh, over 80 and higher-risk neighbourhoods as early as next week. Uh, here in Toronto, we're going to be have to be waiting three weeks. So how is it, you know, the the general sort of blames every delay on supply. So how is it that Ottawa would be in a position to start with older people in the community before, say, Toronto? It, I think it depends on, on how quickly we finish our retirement homes and our long-term care homes, and, and I think Ottawa has, has done them. Uh, I can't speak for Ottawa, but I can speak for my health unit. We're ready to go for the, with the 80-year-olds probably in a week week's time as well. Uh, based on the uh, difference uh, uh, in terms of rapidity with which uh, we, you know, we vaccinated, uh, vaccinate these homes. And it, it's important to realize that there are many more homes in GTA than there are in Ottawa and even more less so in my area, in eastern Ontario. So it has to do with really a combination of the vaccine supply and also how quickly we can get it out to our retirement homes and our long-term care homes. And then our, our next, as soon as we get those done, we will be vaccinating the 80-year-olds uh, because, as you said, that is a vulnerable population that, that requires to be vaccinated as soon as possible. And, and it's a matter of physical size, um, number of uh, vaccines that we have, and number of uh, long-term care facilities in an area. 
so the other question is, uh, it looks like you will be getting to those vulnerable populations before that portal and that call center are up. So how will you be communicating with them and letting them know that it's their turn? Well, we one of the things that the 34 health units have uh, really in place is that we've been vaccinating for decades now and, and in a pandemic setting as well and mass immunization clinics. So we know our population. We know we have the communication channels. We've already ha- we have our own booking system at the local level for these uh, for these populations in place. And so we don't want to uh, have the fact that there's no uh, provincial um, approach ready uh, to delay us. So we will be we have those mechanisms in place. We have municipal partners. We have healthcare providers. We have all of the stakeholders at hand because we know them. And so for us, it's a matter of just reaching out uh, using our usual communication channels to uh, not only communicate to the vulnerable populations, but, but also address them and, and bring the vaccine to them if necessary. Um, yeah, uh, again, I, you know, I'm thinking of the situation in Toronto. And uh, yeah, they, first of all, there were lots of issues with the regular flu rollout this year. I think that was probably mostly a supply issue. But but most people get vaccinated through their doctors or pharmacies. So I, I'm not sure that that they actually do have uh, contact information for the vulnerable populations. Uh, well, we have, we work with, we're working, we're working with our physicians. Uh, I work with the primary care uh, a group uh, provincially as chair of Como, where we are uh, looking at uh, ways that we can engage, share information, uh, share communications and so on, and actually involve them in, in some of the vaccination clinics that we're having. Eventually, as we have more vaccine, they will be receiving pharmacies and primary care offices will be receiving vaccine. But in the interim, we're using whatever context we have. That's what I meant before by the providers and the healthcare practitioners and other stakeholders that can provide us access to these individuals in terms of age group, as well as, you know, the usual communication strategies that we're, that we're using. So, yes, we will be uh, leveraging, I'm saying leveraging in a positive way, our primary care uh, and other uh, clinics and other community agencies to be able to um, spread the word and have access to these individuals. Okay, let's bring in David Kravitz. Uh, are, are you, I mean, uh, it seems like a, a pretty, um, I don't know, very different modes of communication, David. What, what do you make of it? Well, I think that from a, a provincial point of view, um, it implies that, you know, until the portal's up and running, you can't do anything. Uh, I noticed that in uh, Cornwall in Eastern Ontario on their website, uh, he's talking about... Um, mobile and drive-through coming as well. And I think it's excellent. It's wonderful that they have those local resources, but the whole look and feel and tonality of that local health unit, including a doc, uh, Ask Dr. Paul feature on their homepage, so it's clearly much more intimate, closely connected to the community. In Toronto, they have a map of nine clinics not yet available with not much instruction about how you pick which one you're going to go to and how you book it, uh, peel the same. So those citizens, I think, are waiting for the Ontario portal. And certainly, I don't have anything close to the um, accessibility to Toronto Public Health that uh, the doctors... Oh, you and me both. Toronto Public Health, I mean, (laughs) like even their communications is just appalling. Uh, Appalling. And and clearly there's a, uh, I don't want to say intimacy, but there's a closeness and there's a community, a grassroots level uh, interface in eastern Ontario, Cornwall and Glengarry and those counties that the doctor has successfully built up and which has to be applauded. So it's not all... Uh, the, the part that I'm troubled with is that, you know, from the top down system, they have a, uh, you know, this announcement. They've got it. They've got By the way, just, just for, uh, just to get it on the record, we have 3.5 million people in Ontario over the age of 60. And uh, I think something 800,000 and something over the age of 80. Well, so my, my data was six, seven, just under Your data is probably better than mine. So go yeah, ahead. So probably 700,000 over the age of 80. And then if you drop it five years, you're adding another half million. So 75 plus is a million three, uh, 70 plus a million eight, 65 plus two, two million six, um, and 60 plus three million five. So it is true. And to be fair to the premier and his team, um, a lot of this is going to depend on whether these vaccines arrive. 
And I think it was appropriate for the province to say, look, we have to, we have to, because, you know, Libby, you and I on our show every Monday have been calling, where's the info, where's the info, where's the info? So they did have to announce some sort of a plan, but we, uh, we are very much the prisoners of these deliveries, and let's hope that they get made. Well, a bunch just, I'm, I'm looking at what has landed. There were, there, uh, a large number of doses landed yesterday, and, um, uh, is, I'm, is this Pfizer or Moderna? But it's uh, 466,800 doses March the 8th, 846,000 the week of March 22nd, uh, and then uh, another 233,000 uh, doses this week. So it looks like the shots are arriving. I don't know how long it takes. Uh, Dr. Ramiliotis, how, how, how long does it take for uh, the vaccine to get from landing in the country to you? We usually get our allocation the week that they land. So usually they land like on a Saturday. We'll get them on a Monday or a Tuesday. Uh, so it's it's pretty quick that they come to us pretty quickly. And I must tell you that the vaccine supply has been um, not consistent over the last month or so. We're told that we should be expecting, you know, in the millions in March and collectively, uh, collectively, and even more so in, in the second phase. And I just want to go back to what you were saying about, you know, vaccine supply. That's our rate limiting factor. A lot of people ask us, where are your plans? Where are your plans? Well, we have plans. We know what to do when. We just need vaccines. We can't tell people that, you know, on this date, we're going to have a vaccine clinic when we don't know if we're going to receive the vaccine. Yeah. So that's a major sort of source of frustration for us, but it doesn't impede us from planning and being ready and being nimble and pivot, uh, you know, as soon as we get it. So, but I'm happy about though, and I just want to, I want to say that is that in Ontario, we've now vaccinated all long-term care home uh, residents and, uh, uh, and really progressing very well to, for the retirement home residents first dose. Uh, just a sec, Hillier said that we haven't finished the second dose. Pardon me? I'm, ta- I'm talking first dose. Oh, okay. You're talking uh, first, first dose. dose. Yeah. Which confers some, some form of protection. Right. So I, I and, and I'm, I'm very happy about that. My main you know, goal is really to be able to vaccinate those vulnerable individuals, then go to the 80 year olds and, and so on. So um, as soon as we get those numbers out there, like our staff and, and staff across the province are working, you know, weekends to be able to, you know, get the shots in the arms to these vulnerable individuals. But going back to the uh, supply, a lot of the timelines that were set by the general, who, by the way, we're meeting at 2.30, so we'll get a bit of an update from him. Um, a, a lot of those timelines are premised on two vaccines, premised on the Moderna and Pfizer vaccine. And so I believe that the timelines will be uh, will shift to the left in terms of earlier, as soon as we have an AstraZeneca or a Janssen vaccine, vaccination approval, as you've heard, FDA in the United States um, has, is about to approve the Janssen vaccine, which is a single shot and AstraZeneca should be imminently approved here in Canada. So I think these timelines will be, I know it's frustrating for people, but I do believe the timelines will become a bit more reasonable uh, in terms of uh, being a, us being able to aid, deliver dates and also deliver the vaccines. I, I, I want to turn, uh, I, I know, Dr. Ramiliotis, your time is a bit limited, but I want to turn to uh, the question of, uh, first of all, when these portals and call centers come come online, people being able to access them, and also populations that are vulnerable and have mobility issues, you know. The, so I was very, very uh, heartened to read that in Sudbury, for instance, mm-hmm. they are going to be going into the homes of people who get regular home care, yeah. going into their yeah. homes. This while uh, general. Uh, while the general has been saying, you know, uh, it, it's too hard to put the vaccines in doctor's offices, but in Sudbury, they're figuring out how to get it into people's homes. Yeah. And and there's, there's also been, uh, here in Toronto as well, pilot projects where they've taken them into retirement seniors' buildings mm-hmm. while, uh, you know, while the guy in charge is saying this is not a practical thing. Well, I can tell you that we, uh, like my colleague in Sudbury, Dr. Sutcliffe, uh, we too are going to be delivering vaccine into the homes. The, the, the problem there is that the Pfizer vaccine itself, you can't move it twice. 
So uh, that's our rate-limiting factor there, but we are hopefully we'll be able to do that with Moderna because with the Pfizer vaccine, if you move it twice, the second place has to stay there, and once you open the vial, you have to use the vial, otherwise you lose it in five hours. Yep. So that's our rate-limiting factor. So uh, we're working around that to see how we can work around that to be able to deliver vaccine. Moderna is going to be more amenable to that. And, prob- and, and I'm sure the, and, and the AstraZeneca and the other ones will be more amenable. So, however, we are planning and we do recognize the need for going into the homes for people who have home care, chronic home care, and 80-year-olds or, or others uh, who are immobile and are still vulnerable. So we're pledging to do that. Again, the, the rate-limiting factor here is the, is the rigidity with, with, with which we're limited to, to uh, transport the, uh, the Pfizer vaccine and the way, it, the way it, uh, it is very unstable once you move it beyond two places. David, do you have a concern about unequal access? I mean, I was saying this yesterday when we uh, talked to somebody from the Wood Green Community Centre. Their building was the site of one of these pilot projects, and it's like the residents there won the lottery, where depending on where you live and if, if you have certain limitations, well, some people may be able to get the vaccine because because the authorities get to them and and other people you know you're 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 out of luck uh, i i'm thinking that if you're in the toronto public health unit and uh they function the way they function like you better uh, be able to do what they're offering well i think i think you're absolutely right and i think that it goes uh, even beyond the neighborhood level because you've got you know i don't know uh, 30 or 40 local health, uh, local public health units. 34. 34 in Ontario. And clearly, I'm sure that they're all headed by excellent people like our guest this morning. But clearly, distance, size, physical location, makeup of the population, you're going to get variation. The, The trick is to do the best for the most people. And what is the state of the art? And when I look at the, um, Eastern Ontario uh, website, which I've spent a fair bit of time on this morning. Uh, I congratulate the doctor on uh, the quality of the information there. But, you know, they're talking about drive-through. They're talking about mobile. They're talking about doing their best uh, to get the vaccine, whether you come to us or we come to you. Uh, when it's all over, he's got 200 some, I think 200,000 people is what the uh, catchment area is. And they're going to try to get them all done as fast as they can and maximize the the dosage which they have. And I'm not sure that I see the same, you know, consistency of intent and certainly of communication. And I do want to point out, though, Libby, in fairness, because this may come up later, um, less than 10% of people over the age of 80 are not online. So the idea that the portal won't work because seniors aren't online um, that's actually not true. The the amount of uh, uh, seniors that have internet access that spend at least an hour a day uh, uh, on the internet is huge by now. So uh, to be fair, you know, we've been critical where we've had to be, but to be fair, I think that the online portal, if it works, is clearly a better way of doing it than, you know, manning the phones. Um, so I think that part of it's okay, but you're quite right. You know, your your postal code will determine uh, how well you do on this. Okay, uh, as I said, Doctor Emiliotis, I we know your time is limited. Uh, what would you like to leave us with? And and again, maybe you could address. Uh, you know, people will be looking at your health region with envy, saying, you know, I can't get the same kind of service. Well, well here. I can tell you that it's not only my health unit. A lot of our other partner health units uh, have similar approaches, and you know, I cannot speak for Toronto, but I do know. And you know, Dr. Deville very well, and I know that they're looking and, stru- and and trying to create ways of reaching as many people as they can, recognizing that it's difficult in in their context, which is different than ours, and and also trying to uh, you know bring clinics and so on. So I can't speak for them, but I do know that uh, they have a lot of plans and a lot of thought going behind this. Um, just to say that. I agree fully that uh, we also need to uh, look at uh, the digital divide. Uh, as you said before, uh, your, the other, your other guest said that you know 80 or 90 percent of, of 80 year olds do have access, but in our areas and areas outside of the GTA and outside of you know urban areas, uh, the digital broadband is, is quite uh, limited. Uh, mm-hmm. It's it's uh, it's scattered. It's not very reliable. And so we also need to have other ways of communicating with them, including telephone, 
other other media, other formats, newspaper, and so on. So we need to have a blanket approach to get as many people as possible. And I want people to know who are listening that my, I'm I'm speaking for all my uh, all my uh, colleague MOHs, medical officers of health at the 34 health units. That our goal is to, as much as possible, reach out to the vulnerable, reach out to the population, and get this done because that's our light at the end of the tunnel. Okay, uh, Dr. Paul Ramiliotis, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time. No problem. Thank you. Okay, we are continuing with David Kravitz. And uh, speaking of, of this question about the di- digital divide, and there's definitely a, uh, a rural and urban divide when it comes to uh, the quality of your access. So uh, here's what General Hillier had to say about uh, dealing with the online portal. Can we have that clip, please? Let's look after that age group and make sure they got their appointments. The public health units, uh, we talked to them yesterday about this, and they are already reaching out to them and figure that by the 15th of March, they will have wrapped their arms around almost everybody in that age group. Let's double bank, let's triple bank, and let's make sure we look after them and help them get that appointment in either a mass vaccination clinic or a pharmacy or a doctor-run vaccination clinic uh, close to where they live. Okay, so uh, uh, what I took that to mean is, uh, okay, everybody, let's pitch in and help Granny get her appointment. Uh, David, is that a strategy? <laughs> well, that's what, that, that, that's what he's saying. And I think, though, it, it, the sentiment is great, but it will all depend on the details. And, and the things he alluded to uh, are, are the difference. So, for example, a mass vaccination clinic, I took a look at the map based on where I live and the the addresses and the closest one I could find, and I may have misread the map, is the uh, Forest Hill Community Center on uh, Eglinton and Avenue Road. Massive building. And I can, you know, some people will be able to drive there. There's an underground park and go in and wait in line. But how many at a time? How long do you have to wait in line? Those protocols haven't been communicated. It would be easier to go to the doctor. It would be easier to have them come uh, to one's home. So, how are they going to split all that up? I'm not suggesting they don't have any plans, uh, but uh, they certainly haven't uh, announced what those are yet. And that's what's going to make the difference is it'll be the details and not the intent. Uh, yeah, the the other th- thing that I'm thinking, even about the call center, and, you know, of, of the people who are not online, most of them call me, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. They but know how to use the phone. <laughs> they know how to use the phone, That uh, some of them, but a, a lot of older people, even those who don't have any kind of cognitive issues, they have hearing issues. Yeah. Uh, and that can be a problem with a, a call center, especially I, I'm, I'm meaning to ask somebody when, when you get through in the call center, are you reaching somebody in the Philippines with, with a noisy internet connection or is it, it's somebody uh, here? Well, I hope it would be here because, because the location where you have to go or the, the means of access to get that shot would depend on, somebody being able to give you very accurate information about what the next steps are and what time of day and where you're going and how you're going to be, you know, figure out how you're going to get there. Um, those aren't, those aren't just, you know, generic uh, advice. Those, those have very specific local variables that the operator has to understand. And um, probably I would think it's a local uh, a local call because they need to really know that geography very well, I think. Okay. I hope. Uh, I hope. Okay. So uh, Maureen in Mississauga has been waiting very patiently. Go ahead, Maureen. Maureen, are you still there? Maureen? I'm going to try one more time. Maureen in Mississauga, you've been waiting almost half an hour, so I'd like to give you an opportunity to have your say. Is she there? Okay, Maureen, maybe you will uh, call back, and tomorrow is free-for-all Friday. Uh, Okay, Uh, so, uh, David, we are just about out of time. What what, what are you, like, what's the bottom line on this? Well, I think think they've come forward with with, uh, the best they can do, given the supply. Uh, There's so much local variance. And I think that's the way they're set up. Um, in some ways, it's good because you get that community responsiveness. In other ways, you wonder whether 
um, each local unit has the same resources and whether they're communicating with the head office properly and whether the booking engine is going to be, a, uh, you know, equally applicable, um, you know, across the province. And I am worried about, you know, the portal crashing. I would not have taken up your bet. With me. <laughs> if I were the premier, I would have saved my 180 bucks, but uh, we'll it's, see. It'll not... go to a good cause, I promise. <laughs> well, I know. I <laughs> he know. hasn't taken it up yet. No, I, I, if I was him, I would, uh, I would leave that, I would leave that one alone. Um, but I think that, uh, I also want to think, I also suspect, and I could be wrong, that they have set the bar very low deliberately. They're not getting around to 60-year-olds till July, for heaven's sake, never mind the rest of the population. And at some future show, we're probably going to have to talk about, you know, this fantasy that everybody will be vaccinated by September of all age groups. It's not going to happen. But I think this is such a conservative a, a tranching of the age group that I think they're hoping they can beat this and that they want to plant the flag in the ground along very long timelines so that they can beat it there. If you look at, um, if you're 60 to 65 years old, we won't see you till July one. And that just seems like an awfully long time. And I think they will beat that. So I think this is a shrewd move to, you know, under promise and over deliver well i think so i think finally maybe that's what they woke up we better start doing that because the other way is not working well uh david i have to say in closing i think you're being quite generous by saying that the limitation on the whole thing is the supply because uh our next guest uh, who's going to be dr samir sinha who's a gerontologist i'm inclined to agree with him. And I think it is a function that older people, even though they are most likely to die, are not the priority. They're like in a whole big basket of priorities. And, and frankly, I, you know, I, I agree healthcare workers are really important and they are at risk. But, uh, you know, seeing all kinds of hospital workers getting their shots, people, young people, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not getting it. And I think it's because the priority is, uh, is, is not quite right. And in British Columbia, Bonnie Henry, the medical officer of health, the sainted Bonnie Henry, uh, you know, she is sticking to age as a factor for priority. Well, 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 one thing I'll just say in closing, I know you're running out of time when you talk to Dr. Sena, the Ontario website says 8.7 million people uh, covered in this phase. Uh, well, we have 3.5 million who are 60 plus. So who are the other 5 million? I don't think we have 5 million frontline healthcare workers. So who are they? And uh, that's probably what he wants to talk about is that you know, are we are we trickling it out to the population that needs it the most in order to, uh, you know, cover other groups at the same time? So that's probably he's probably um, he's probably uh, correct there. OK, David, thank you so much. And I'm sure we'll be talking about this oh, again okay. soon. I appreciate it. Let me thank okay. so much. Thank OK, you. David Kravitz, Chief Marketing Officer at CARP. And we're going to take a quick break. And then, as promised, we're going to talk to leading gerontologist Dr. Samir Sinha about this rollout and uh, about the question of who is getting priority when we return. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We are going to be talking about uh, where older Ontarians stand in the priority list and, and what the reaction is to the current timetable for the rollout. Uh, we are just waiting to reach Dr. Samir Sinha, and uh, let's take a call from Dorothy in Mississauga. Hi, Dorothy. Hi. I am also dismayed by how the vaccine priority is being handled. The issue cannot be blamed slowly on, solely on the lack of supplies. If Ontario had followed the National Advisory Committee recommendations that those who are most at risk should be done first, the oldest age groups would have received their first shots by now. We have also all heard about how some people are receiving the vaccine who are not the highest risk and who are not a frontline worker in high-risk areas. So my question is, 
I would like to know who is on the committee making the decisions and what statistics are they being used? Are they medical statistics? Secondly, why is Ontario not following the National Advisory Committee in distributing the vaccines? Why are the answers not transparent, considering that in Ontario, 96% of the deaths are people aged 60 and over? Dorothy, uh, we all want to know the same things. <laughs> we all want to know the same things. Uh, and, and part of the answer is that health is provincial and each province can uh, decide on their own. And, and, uh, as you've probably noticed, you know, there's all kinds of lobbying from different groups that want to be on the priority list. And uh, before I get to Dr. Sinha, I noticed, so for instance, in BC, Dr. Bonnie Henry, the medical officer of health, who is the superstar medical officer of health and and has said that she is sticking to age as a criteria, well, she's getting blowback from that. Uh, But uh, I think uh, if anyone can withstand all of that, it's probably her. But uh, uh, you ask very good questions uh, and uh, we're trying to get answers for that for those questions, too. So thank you for your call. Thank you. Okay, Uh, let's go now to uh, leading gerontologist, Dr. Samir Sinha. And uh, again, uh, the delay in reaching seniors across Ontario. Dr. Sinha, you believe is because they're not at the top of the priority list. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just really clear and apparent that uh, the the general's kind of announcement was saying that, look, you know, we've made our recommendations and this task force has made their recommendations to cabinet. So we have a bunch of cabinet ministers um, who are actually saying, yeah, we want to of course, vaccinate older people, you know, but we're also going to try and vaccinate a bunch of other people who our National Advisory Committee on Immunization has said should not be prioritized before those who are at the highest risk. And the science, I'm, I'm, uh, this is not an opinion, this is actually the scientific evidence, says that if you look at any factors that are related to your risk of getting sick and dying from COVID-19, age is the absolute number one greatest factor. And frankly, we're actually really lucky that we actually have something that is so clear and definitive in the evidence to really point us to something that's actually really easy to do. Because literally, I don't have to ask you a whole bunch of questions. I just need to say, how old are you? Most people know that. Most people have evidence of that on a driver's license or on, a, on an OHIP card or whatever the case is. And then all of a sudden, that's all we need to do. And that's why Israel followed that approach rapidly. The UK has vaccinated pretty much all of its older citizens now as well, because it literally is. We have databases. We actually could just go through and say, let's start with the oldest to work down in five-year increments, and there we go. So what troubles me most is that because people say, well, wait a minute, the government is saying that they're going to be vaccinating older people, um, but it's going to take until, my goodness, July, if you're over 60, you're going to start hearing about your opportunity in July. Yet we will have enough vaccines in Ontario before the end of April to offer all 3.5 million um, older Ontarians, 16 older, a first dose of the vaccination. So this is not an impossible thing to do. And that's why I commend Dr. Henry. I commend Dr. Hinshaw. I commend Dr. Rusin. I commend all the other medical officers of health and all the premiers across the other provinces who are following the National Advisory Committee on Immunization Guidelines and making sure that they vaccinate their older citizens first before they get to essential workers. Why? It's not about discrimination. It's about science that's showing that even just by being older than 60, your risk of dying is that much greater than, say, even someone like me as a 44-year-old healthy frontline worker working with people who have COVID. Okay. Uh, now, the the thing that I'm seeing lately in this whole thing is that there's plenty of opportunity to point a finger and blame the other person. But let's... Uh, l- let, let's drill down on that a bit. So you, you uh, mentioned the other medical officers of health. Uh, would this have come as the recommendation from our medical officer of health, Dr. Williams? Or do you think it's a matter of lobbying? I mean, every time something is announced, there's another group that says we have to be vaccinated first. 
is it is it that this government you think couldn't withstand that pressure? Is it the recommendation from Dr. Williams? Uh, some people, I mean, for instance, the nurses' union is blaming hospitals. Says that it's because the hospitals were in charge of the initial rollout. Hospital workers got it. So, w- w- what's your take on that, Samir? Yeah, no, it's, it's it's a great question, Libby, and I think I think here's here's how I understand it works. I think the you know I sit on the um, the provincial testing strategy panel, for example. We provide advice, we provide recommendations, we provide that directly to Dr. David Williams. Dr. Williams is our is our chief medical officer of health uh, for Ontario, and then I understand that he just uh, will put through take our information, our advice. Um, and then he will make recommendations to cabinets and to the premier um, to make the ultimate decisions um, in the province. Uh, and so, so with the vaccine task force, I don't know if it's solely they're making recommendations to Dr. Williams, and then Dr. Williams takes that. But as we've heard it is, yesterday, it is. That, yeah, that's so, the that's that's the process. But where I, what I'm asking you is, do you know, do, or do you have a theory about? Where did this go awry in Ontario? Well, I think the the key is ultimately, you know, Dr. Williams will make whatever, and I don't know what his advice is, it's never actually revealed what his recommendations are, but all I know is between him and it becoming a rule, it goes through cabinet, Um, and then you have a bunch of cabinet ministers sitting around, for example, who I don't necessarily know they will necessarily only think about the science and the evidence or the principles of protecting lives, because I think in Ontario, we've also said that we wanted to try and protect businesses. But I think a lot of cabinet ministers don't appreciate that actually uh, when you're trying to when you think you're protecting businesses, you're actually endangering lives. And when you endanger lives, you actually collapse the healthcare system, which then means that we have lockdowns and then screws all of us in the grand scheme of things. So this is why I think the provinces that have done particularly well are ones where they really allow their medical officers of health to actually lead um, in giving the advice. And frankly, cabinet says what Dr. Bonnie says is what goes. Um, I, I'm hoping that Dr. Williams is also giving the same advice um, that many other respected medical officers of health, and frankly, our chief medical officer of health for Canada is saying, but I don't know what advice he is giving. Um, I hope it is the right advice, um, but I only know that somewhere between what he states um, and what comes out the door, it just doesn't seem like it's a good result in the end, and it's only affecting um, older people in Ontario um, in a much more negative way than in any other province in the country. Yeah, I mean, uh, so I I know you work in a hospital. I don't want to get get you in trouble, but the the criticism against hospitals that came from nurses is, is, do do you, uh, what do you think of that? Well, no, I mean, I think, again, the hospitals are working within the rules that have been set by the province. And I think the province has basically said, you know, the clear guidance is that high risk, um, you know, healthcare workers, frontline workers that uh, that are, you know, working are are the ones that should be prioritized for vaccination. So I remember receiving an email from the both networks that I work in, UHN and Sinai, being very clear and saying, here's the prioritization. And frankly, Anybody who is an employee of the hospital who's working from home is in the last, absolute last category. But the categories for prioritization of vaccinations are the top two out of, I think it's a five or six category scale. Um, so I don't know if, if, if hospitals are not, uh, if there are cases where hospitals are not following the provincial guidance, well, that's a concern. Um, I don't know that my organization, I, do, I haven't heard that my organization is not following um, the guidance. I think they, they're doing an excellent job. And in fact, it's, you know, I I have to commend the Toronto hospitals in particular, because it was their efforts that frankly got all of our homes, long-term care homes and retirement homes in Toronto vaccinated a month earlier than when the rest of the province got the long-term care homes vaccinated. So again, you know, all I keep seeing is a situation where compared to every other province, 
we keep figuring out ways to fail seniors in any way possible by delaying even getting our vac- our homes vaccinated. Because again, I talk about Toronto getting its residents vaccinated in its long-term care homes by January 15th compared to the rest of the province's long-term care homes by February 15th. Well, I can tell you pretty much every other province got it done by January 15th as well. So why is it that we are now not going to be offering seniors in Ontario vaccinations or the opportunity to apply for one till March 15th, yet other provinces across the country that are getting per capita doses, so the same levels of doses, um, why are they able to start moving forward? It's because they're not actually having, for example... Um, you know, an 80-year-old trying to compete with a firefighter, for example, for for a vaccination. Or a teacher. Or a teacher or anybody that the National Advisory Committee on Immunization say absolutely should be prioritized for a vaccination, but in the second group. Get the seniors vaccinated first. Once you have done that, and anybody older the 70, once you hit all the 70-year-olds, then absolutely get to those teachers, those firefighters, those construction workers, those grocery store workers as soon as possible. But on balance, anybody 70 and older, much higher risk of dying than than a teacher or a firefighter, um, et cetera. Uh, we we uh, only have a, a couple of seconds left. So my two questions are, so first of all, is there, is there, is this cast in stone? Is there anything that can be done? You can change it at a heartbeat. And frankly, I was thrilled um, the other week when Ontario actually reversed its decision and moved its 80-year-old plus population into phase one from phase two. So that's an example where the Ontario government can actually fix its mistakes. So anything is possible and we can always fix our mistakes. And is there uh, anyone that they are actually listening to? Is, is, is there an effort underway to get them to fix their mistake? Well, I think, you know, usually, uh, apparently, like now, it's my Twitter feed and that of my other colleagues that seems to at least get some attention from folks like you to amplify messages that remind them that 80% of our older people vote, and that's 3.5 million people. We keep reminding them from CARP and Zoomer. And and you know what? And, you know, frankly, sometimes for some of those people around the cabinet table, I mean, someone sent an email to me criticizing, saying, how dare you try and bring up a political angle? But frankly... Um, I'm going to use every single tool in my toolbox to remind people that older people are not invisible, older people matter, and that their lives should be prioritized and they shouldn't be taken for granted. Because one day, if we all play our cards right, we will be Zoomers or older people. And frankly, we wouldn't want to be treated the way we're treating them right now. Uh, well said. I I can't say any more to uh, that. Um We've got to go. So, Dr. Samir Sinha, I hope to talk to you again soon. And I really hope that someone is listening because it just seems so clear. Thanks so much, Libby. Okay. All righty. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about another group that is very vulnerable to the worst cases of COVID-19. And that is people with diabetes and what's happening on that front when we return. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back. Older people are not the only especially vulnerable group when it comes to COVID-19. We've known for a while that diabetes, especially type 2 diabetes, is a major risk factor for severe disease. And earlier this month, there were some very disturbing findings from a French study. And according to that French Coronado study, half of patients with diabetes hospitalized with covid uh, are discharged from hospital within a month. That's pretty long hospital stay. However, a fifth die. Those are huge numbers. Uh, let me give the numbers out again. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And let's go to Dr. Laura Rosella, Professor of Epidemiology at the Dalalana School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. Dr. Rosella, thank you so much. 
My pleasure. Great to be here. Uh, so um, uh, I, I'm assuming that that those numbers to me are are just shocking. Twenty percent of people hospitalized with COVID with diabetes dying. Yeah, they are. They're pretty alarming, actually. Um, we we do know that individuals with diabetes are at higher risk for having complications from infections generally. So that's something that's known with diabetes, but the relationship with COVID-19 is very strong, I think stronger than uh, initially thought. And now that we're starting to accumulate the data, we're seeing um, these high numbers and, and pretty pretty scary outcomes for patients living with diabetes. And do you have a theory about why that is beyond the propensity for infections? Yeah, so there's been this has been an active area of science uh, right now because uh, the the increase is, is quite alarming. And, and so we don't know for sure, uh, not one thing in particular, but some hypotheses have been raised, some things have been tested. So one, one may be the direct impact of the virus itself. So uh, there's some initial evidence, mostly from laboratory, saying that the, the virus actually impacts the pancreas where insulin is produced, making it work. Um, and there's an indirect effect on insulin production. There's also uh, a hypothesis around inflammation and the actual acute illness. So when individuals are sick with COVID-19, they're very ill and it actually, you know, wreaks quite a bit of havoc on the body for, uh, you know, in simplistic terms. And as a result, that inflammation raises blood sugar and makes all um, the, the complications of diabetes uh, more pronounced. And then the last thing may be actually the treatment. So uh, steroids, for example, are a common treatment for uh, COVID-19 effective, but it could uh, raise blood sugar levels even higher, which makes the complications of diabetes uh, more prevalent. So these are some of the hypotheses all being confirmed right now, and probably it's a mixture of many playing a role. Um, the, the other thing that's considered a risk factor is obesity. And in this particular study, I, I saw a correlation with a body mass index of, of, uh, 28 and a half, I think. Yeah. And yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. No, no. Uh, finish your thought. <laughs> finish uh, your question. Well, no, my question is, uh, why would, that be, uh, and I, I know a lot of people, uh, you know, poo-poo the whole concept of body mass index anyway, but um, uh, so why would that be? Yeah, so one of the, again, hypotheses does has to have to do with inflammation and, and the acute illness. So when you have a higher body mass, and even if you don't like that particular measure, essentially more weight um, than your body can handle in the effective way, then it makes the, it makes it challenging for your body to do all of its normal functions. And when those functions are being attacked, like they are... Hello? It's thought to exacerbate the results. Oh, can you hear me? Uh, yes, you dro- you dropped out uh, for a second. So, okay. So what is the bottom line on this, or is there any special advice for people with diabetes? So the first and most important advice would be uh, prevention, really taking care uh, to take all measures possible to avoid COVID-19 exposure wherever possible. Obviously, that's the advice for everybody. Everybody knows that. Um, but taking those extra precautions because we know that if infected, the outcomes are more serious. And the one thing in the study, although it is an observational study and, you know, we, we can't say for certain until we start seeing some more corroborating evidence, is it, does, it does look like that individuals with diabetes um, who were on metformin, who had lower BMI, as you mentioned, and less complications, so where their diabetes was possibly better controlled, seem to have better outcomes. So if someone is living with diabetes, all of the advice from your doctor on the, on the treatment to make sure that your diabetes is well controlled looks like it can be helpful in preventing some COVID complications as well as among among diabetes uh, cases. Now, I know that uh, there are a lot of people who uh, are actually walking around with diabetes but don't know it. So uh, are, first of all, people who are patients generally aware of this? And and what about those who are uh, referred to as pre-diabetic? Yeah, this has also come up because a number of individuals actually have been hospitalized with COVID-19 and 
also discover they meet the criteria for diabetes diagnosis in that visit. And so scientists are asking a question, is COVID, you know, a key factor in um, diabetes incidence? But actually, in fact, probably many people have underlying prediabetes or very uh, uh, close to being ha- having a diabetes diagnosis, or they do have diabetes and they just don't know about it. And this is why regular screening is really critical. Um, it's a fairly routine uh, blood work that's done through a family doctor. Family doctors are still seeing patients with COVID uh, during COVID uh, through virtual visits. Lab visits are still possible. And so any routine screening for anyone 40 years and older for uh, uh, type 2 diabetes is recommended. And that we, we, we would recommend that happen as soon as possible because if you do have a diagnosis, there are things you can do to control your diabetes. And we know that will also help uh, even if you are infected with COVID-19. Uh, okay. And I, I, I know that um, you, uh, as part of the University of Toronto, you've just launched a $40 million public health project uh, to help fight type 2 diabetes in, in Mississauga. Uh, we uh, have about a minute left. Why don't you tell us about that, please? Yeah, we're thrilled about this investment. This is about thinking uh, about chronic disease prevention, diabetes prote- prevention in particular, in a brand new way. That is, um, you know, we know we we live in our cities and we maybe take for granted the fact of how important our cities are to our health. And there's lots of barriers, actually, to many of us that want to engage in healthy uh, living. Uh, they, we want to be able to walk to amenities. We're concerned about the, the green space or lack thereof around us. And so there's a huge opportunity to have cities and researchers and hospitals and communities working together to make uh, our cities uh, healthier. And Mississauga is going to serve as a blueprint for the world on a, a new way of doing this. And so that's what this investment's all about. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, we are, uh, you know, uh, basically out of time. So what what would you like to leave? I mean, diabetes is basically an epidemic. Um, what would you like to leave people with? Yeah, that diabetes is one of the most uh, and growing chronic uh, conditions in Canada and, uh, and growing around the world. And I guess what I would like to leave uh, people with is that there are lots of factors that contribute to diabetes. It's not just individual choice. Most people want to live the healthiest life uh, possible and that there's a lot of support in the community and, and in our cities that are needed to make that happen. And just taking advantage of that and understanding that it's not, you know, it's not a bad decision that anyone made. It's a function of many complex factors and those need to be addressed. Okay. Thank you so much, Dr. Laura Rosella. Thank you for having me. Okay. And uh, remember, people, Free For All Friday is coming up tomorrow. If you could not get through or if this has sparked any questions, uh, we always have a lively discussion then. And that's all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.